This episode of Untold Stories is sponsored by Paraswap. You'll hear more about them later on in this episode. What is up, everyone? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I am Charlie Shrem, and you are listening and watching. Well, not watching this time, but you are listening to Untold Stories, where twice a week together, we get to dive deep with some of crypto's most influential leaders to find out how this movement truly came to be. And today, I'm blessed, actually, to have a good friend of mine back on the show, Jeff Garzik, a true OG in the Bitcoin space, and like myself and others, never left, continues to grow and build and do so many different things. There's a lot for us to talk about, recap some of the, the things that we talked about, I think, over like a year ago with Vesper Finance, Block, which is really cool, actually, because we had one of your incubated companies, Titan Mining, just on the show the other day, too. Jeff Garzik, welcome back to Untold Stories. It's uh, great to be here, and uh, I'm just having the the best time of my life building in uh, building in DeFi. Just really exciting to to kind of be surfing the the wave of new finance and new technology with everyone else. You've you've been in the space for so long, and you understand the waves. You've been on the the cutting edge and the leading edge of building out the products. Uh, and services during all of those waves. I mean, the, the the things you've built and done are endless. And I'm going to get to a question here, but not only are you the, the CEO of Block, you're the CTO of Vesper Finance, you serve on the board of Coin Center, the advisory board of Bitfury, BitPay, Chain.com, so many others. You've been giving talks for over a decade in Bitcoin. Uh, you and I have sat, you know, at, at bars in Argentina together from there to, and Calo, everywhere, all over just discussing things like Bitcoin and crypto. My question to you, Jeff, is a question that probably very few people can answer. Are we finally at this point now where we, we believe that our space actually is going to exist for decades to come? Are we no longer in that, like, we may not be here tomorrow, this whole thing can fall apart next week or next month? Has that era ended Unquestionably, that era has ended. We, uh, uh, Bitcoin is absolutely not going away. I kind of ask myself as a, a pressure test or a, you know, technology prognosticator, what should I build on next? Uh, what technologies are going to be here five years, 10 years, decades from now? And it is, uh, you kind of have to take it network by network because everyone's, you know, spill, spinning up the latest Ethereum killer, Bitcoin killer, sure. uh, whatever. So I tend to take the question uh, network by network, but with uh, as as we record this in mid-August, the most recent regulatory uh, brouhaha in Washington D.C. Uh, there's an infrastructure bill that's uh, going through Congress, and it had this rider that was kind of a you know, not really an exaggeration, a kill cryptocurrency rider in the United States. So it would really push cryptocurrency. Uh, you know, use, et cetera, offshore due to its uh, really poorly worded language. And the backlash from every corner was just amazing. It wasn't just the uh, the crypto activists and, and old, old, old school OGs like yourself and myself, but major businesses, by some estimates, uh, 18 to 20% of uh, Americans have touched or, or do hold crypto. Wow. Uh, and so that has really been from my earliest days in 2010, getting into Bitcoin, the litmus test of are we 
Uh, can we be wiped off the map to your question? Are we going away uh, or are we here to stay? And in those early days, you know, with my my uh, my long haired days with my hair down to my I bum. miss your long hair days. Uh, yeah, I you've know had it. so many different like haircuts <laughs> and things over the years. Yeah, we've gotten more and more respectable uh, over the years, I guess, or or a little bit older and wiser. But yeah, the the fear in those days, in the early days, was it's just so easy to stamp out this nascent community and this this wonderful innovative technology that's you know I felt at the time was going to change the world. It's so easy with a small audience and a small set of holders. How do we embed it such that cryptocurrency will never die, which is, you know, my, my activist goal, right? And having sufficient numbers of people around the world holding it, including, you know, people in the U.S. Treasury, people in Congress, literal cryptocurrency holders, you embed it such that, uh, you know, uh, stamping out a Bitcoin just becomes too, creates too much collateral damage. You know, there's too many people incentivized to work against stamping out Bitcoin in the United States if there are sufficient holders. That was always the mountain to climb. That was always the, the Rubicon to cross. And we've crossed it, you know, we, we've done it. And I am confident that from this point, cryptocurrency and, and in particular, Bitcoin is not going away. So this infrastructure bill, probably in the last decade, was and is uh, the biggest uh, fear um, to all Bitcoiners, crypto folk, everyone, because it would just completely, it, it united us again. But at the same time, it's it was extremely, you know, kind of scary coming through. And do you think now that we've changed how American politics is actually run? Because traditionally, you'd go to the lobby organizations. You know, we, we have Coin Center and everything, and we did go there, but we also went to social media and we had the senators and the congressmen. I had a mayor of, of I have multiple politicians on this podcast. They're coming on our podcast. They're interacting with us so publicly. You don't see that. You don't see them in the, in the medical. You know, when they're trying to get a new opioid passed, you know, legalized. <laughs> you don't see the FDA. You know, the medical Pfizer going on FDA's podcast or whatever, or the opposite way around. Have we changed? Are we different? Well, we're we're bigger. We're vi more more visible. We're more impactful. You know, the the all the old sayings, the old salts about what makes the world go round. It always comes back to money and power. At the end of the day. And Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, that's one half of that is money. And we're seeing that play out with uh, kind of big tech censorship, uh, you know, the current debates out in our culture today. That, that all applies to money and Bitcoin and its censorship resistance are really in the, the firing line, the center of that debate of that privacy versus control versus you know, save the children versus law enforcement. It's all in that that fiery crucible with Bitcoin uh, at the center. And is that uh, going to, you know, it's kind of a prism through which everyone looks at current debates, it, whether it's uh, free speech or whether it's freedom of movement, freedom of assembly, you know, freedom of religion, all, you know, yeah. kind of the the US, I'm going down the U.S. Bill of Rights at this point. All yeah. of those are up for grabs, even freedom of thought, you know, with uh, censorship of 
misinformation, which might be alleged misinformation, which might be misinformation today, but six weeks from now, official CDC policy, Bitcoin and whether we can directly control an individual's ability to pay another individual or company and how to track that and should we control that, you know, Bitcoin opens all of those questions and all of those questions are just a mirror for uh, the questions we're asking ourselves in the larger society. What questions should we be asking ourselves now in this larger society? I mean, we just had this 20-year war in Afghanistan that led to nowhere and cost our economy, but potentially that war could lose America its status in, in, on the world stage. We borrowed so much money. It's really insane. People don't understand. I, and and, then, and and what did, what happened out of that? It's just immense where the world is today. What should we be thinking about? Well, I think, uh, and, and this, this comes from a response uh, to, a, to a good friend of mine, Zuku, over at Zcash. I have tons of respect for him, and, and his team is uh, really outstanding. It's, it's really the question, and I, I don't pretend to have an answer here, of if we have complete end-to-end privacy and encryption, that is something that is very much needed in modern times to defend ourselves from cyber criminals, from stalkers, from trolls and, you know, things like that. I think uh, a lot is apparent about, uh, you know, kid, my kids, they'll, they'll be very much online and uh, kind of the, the permanence of the internet record means that like one mistake, one F up uh, just kind of lives with you forever. And, and, you know, you're immediately tagged uh, by the internet search engines of the world with that one mistake. And uh, so do we need anonymity to combat that? And Bitcoin and various encryptions can help with that. As Balaji Srinivasan uh, often says, uh, pseudonyms are, uh, you know, can extend all the way up to uh, you need a pseudonym to participate as a, a full sovereign free citizen in a modern techno nation state. So, so that's, that's kind of one you know. side of it. And the, yeah. But the other side is law enforcement and criminals. And, uh, you know, how do you track criminals if everything is fully encrypted? They have to build spy agencies, then ever more surveillance to work around. Well, we have zero visibility to this guy's movements, this guy's this and that, you know, which we'd want for privacy. But at the same time, it's you get you, you get both the good and the bad, right? You get the protection yeah. for yourself. It's and a balance you get the protection for the criminals and they can hide literally, you know, hide really awful things with encryption. So that is the modern debate of our time. That's relevant to money and non-money. The thing is, as I've realized, is that we're all Bitcoiners, you know, from, from Senator Lumens to, uh, um, and I hope I pronounced her name right, to down to, 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 the, to the homeless guy outside my office right now who, who has Bitcoin on his phone, everyone is a Bitcoiner. And, and honestly, that, it, it's, a common, it's a common bond. You meet someone anywhere in the world, it's a common bond. So now that we have that, we're saying that Bitcoin is like an ultimate form of collateral. We're not just talking about money, right? You're collateralizing all of the freedoms that you were talking about earlier. Absolutely. And uh, I've always said that, that uh, Bitcoin itself is more than money. It's a social network. And a lot of these cryptos at the end of the day are social networks. And I uh, 
you know, especially, uh, you know, with my, my history going through all the, the 2017 dramas and stuff like that is very, look at it very much sociologically. And from the, the earliest days in 2010, some of my earliest presentations, I've said that uh, Bitcoin is an organism that evolves. Bitcoin is a social network. It's uh, a network of the people who are holding Bitcoin. Maybe that's a self-evident definition. But also, it's a very existential one, right? Because if you and I and the homeless man all hold Bitcoin, then if there's an assault on Bitcoin, we all have an incentive to band together and work against that uh, challenge. And so that's what makes it, at the end of the day, a social network. And you could even argue that the U.S. dollar is like the biggest social network in the world, as I think. Tracy Alloway on the the Bloomberg Odd Lots podcast just argued. Oh yeah, that's a great podcast too. Probably one of the only other podcast. I like it because it's not an echo chamber. Oh, absolutely. And I'm a, I'm a big big fan of both of those. Uh, Joe Weisenthal, in fact, he uh, he interviewed me in like uh, 2012 in the halls of uh, Citigroup. No, 2014. Oh, nice. era. And uh, he's always been thoughtful. He's he's never you know, towed the crypto line or towed, you know, the, the fiat line. He just, one of the few journalists uh, that keeps a truly open mind. And I'm, I'm really impressed. Yeah. Most, most of the time I was following him on Twitter. I like everything. (laughs) I follow, I don't like people who use their followings and then post misinformation and snarkiness that only they understand to engage response from their followings. And then the follow, the followers just are filled with all this misinformation and it's just, I don't, you know, I believe that if you have a big following on a social media, there is some like ethical and moral responsibility. Who knows what that is yet? But that's, that's another conversation for another time. A lot well, it's the Stan Lee quote, with right? With great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and when you're not, you, it's, I am so guilty of this myself that I'm not the perfect, I'm not virtual signaling, but at least like with, you know, like decentralization is a path that you have to try to always stay on. You know, being true to yourself is always a path too. You're never going to be perfect, but as long as you, you kind of know, right? You've had multiple iterations of you, long hair, short hair, everything. We're talking about our appearances today and they can't see us. I feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, if people Google, they can see the many iterations of Jeff from the, uh, the, the red hat, long hair days to uh, the, uh, the CTO suit, short hair days of today. <laughs> so. A lot of, um, myself included, actually, Bitcoiners ignored DeFi for a long time because scaling in Bitcoin is is slower, mostly better, but it's it's uh, you know smart scaling is better than fast scaling. Now that you know we've been, I've been talking to to multiple folks in the Lightning ecosystem, and we've been watching Bitcoin scale. We've seen the capacity over two thousand Bitcoin on the Lightning network. Um, what is Bitcoin's role in DeFi, is it like more where we're looking at it, blockchains, the Bitcoin blockchain, can Bitcoin be used more as a collateral and therefore nothing will be on the main chain? Have you thought about this as your role as CTO of Vesper Finance? I have a million and one thoughts. Uh, absolutely. The Lightning Network has always been kind of the, the way to scale Bitcoin. And if you have the Lightning Network, that tends to mean that uh, the Bitcoin blockchain itself is more of a settlement network if Lightning's usage uh, picks up. 
I'm a huge fan uh, in particular, uh, you know, full disclosure, no monetary involvement whatsoever, just literally a fan of Open Dex, which is a lightning-based multi-network trading uh, engine. So uh, you can like post Ethereum on the Ethereum network and I can post Bitcoin on the Bitcoin network and you and I can trade over the Lightning oh. network. And so, uh, you know, just scaling out transaction volume, uh, Lightning uh, is a solution very clearly. Uh, but there, I kind of stratify Lightning in a couple ways uh, because there's some challenging economic incentives. The okay. uh, one that's that's been recently uh, almost addressed, I say, is the payment use case. And the payment use case, you had to perform some L1 transactions, locking some funds just to pay like, you know, two cents or a 20 cent coffee or whatever. And so that was a, a, a clear kind of economic roadblock to just using Lightning for everyday transactions. The onboarding was very expensive and just didn't make economic sense. But once you were onboarded, once you were on the network, then, hmm. uh, you know, transacting was very straightforward. So uh, that combined with just basic Bitcoin volatility, it's, it's a real challenge when, you know, either Bitcoin's uh, falling in price or versus USD or, or rising in price versus USD. Uh, you tend to want to like hodl and uh, accumulate, uh, you know, buy the dip or, you know, hodl and let the price go up, whatever. And that, that in general, uh, runs against using Bitcoin as a first order payment method um, oh, you know, versus stable saying. coins yeah. and stuff like that. So, you know, there's some challenges for the payment side, but there's some use cases, which Lightning is absolutely amazing for. Number one, like I just said, uh, kind of cross-chain trading. Uh, the contracts uh, work perfectly for that. It's, it's safe, it's secure, it's quick. I think uh, a lot of trade, a lot of OTC trading, uh, you could e you could eliminate uh, a lot of uh, Risk, existing yeah. trust in existing OTC by using the Lightning Network. Um, and then finally, it's a whole new exchange deposit model where uh, if say Binance was fully integrated with the Lightning Network, then you don't have to deposit to Binance. You just have to uh, sign a contract that says I've got this in my stream. Then when you say, uh, say you're trading ETH BTC and you have BTC, you can leave that in your wallet until the absolute last second when that BTC goes to the order book. And then it's, uh, it's locked in uh, another contract. And then when it either trades out or you cancel the order, it comes out of the order book, it goes back to your Lightning wallet immediately. And Binance in this example never held your BTC. So that's a... That's a, a new exchange how can laws deposit keep up with this? model. I mean, how do you explain this to regulators? How do you explain that this technology is adapting so fast and so quickly? How do you, I mean, right then and there, I don't, I can't even, I'm just, how do you put that into any legal framework that ever existed? Yeah, that's, that's another sort of question for our times. <laughs> and I've been talking recently with some of the, uh, the representatives in Congress. The thing I tell them is, Innovation always leads regulation. This is like a fundamental law of the universe. You know, this is uh, Jeff Newton's first law is regulators are always trailing. And from that axiom, you have to 
think, well, how do we deal with that? Do we create regulatory sandboxes? Do we say, okay, you know, this particular gadget gets six months to figure itself out regulatorily until, and then we start regulating it. Um, what are these uh, systems that we can put in place at government level to handle new innovation? Working with, uh, and I have kind of an answer, NASA. When NASA works with spacecraft, they are in the business of always dealing with new crazy technology that someone literally, some physicist just dreamed up and wrote on a napkin last night. Uh, and how do they deal with innovation has been a question that I've been researching actively, both for, for blockchain, for one of my projects called Space Chain, et cetera. And they have uh, this technology readiness level or TRL, uh, you know, going back to the 90s, Total Request Live, TRL yeah. <laughs> uh, level one through nine, where one level one is kind of, you know, the physicist just wrote his idea on a paper napkin. Level two, he's kind of got a, a mental model. Level three, there's an actual model. Level four, it's been bench tested in a lab. All the way up to level nine, it's been flight tested multiple times. And so no matter what technology, uh, you know, what crazy technology rocket scientists come up with, this TRL scale lets NASA bracket it into kind of a maturity level. And I think government and regulators should take a cue from aerospace and other really, really fast moving sectors and ask, how do they deal, you know, with new technology that, uh, you know, in NASA's case might, you know, accidentally spread a, a bad microbe and to, to an alien planet and deforest it or, you know, picking, picking the old avatar example. Uh, so how can regulators figure that out, I think, is a, another modern question for our times. But regulation always trails innovation. The biggest problem with DeFi today as we know it is there are simply no aggregators or way to bring all of this information and data together so we can trade off of it. We're going to Uniswap and we're clicking sell, 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 or buy, buy, buy. I mean, imagine staying up till two o'clock in the morning just so you can make a trade. The folks at Paraswap, my newest sponsor, are doing exactly that. They are the fastest and most liquid aggregator on the Ethereum blockchain. They've built a state-of-the-art algorithm that aggregates all the major decentralized exchanges in order to beat the market price. They are willing to offer you on your first swap a 50% gas refund. Check it out in the show notes. I mean, there's no reason not to use PowerSwap. It's the same thing as using any of these other sites, but you're getting a better price, zero slippage, better swap, safer, faster, more secure. Uh, what's, what's the downside? There is none that I could think of. And you're getting your first swap, 50% gas fees paid for. It solves every problem that I could think of. Make sure you check them out. They're my sponsors. I love them. And I love them even more that they're pushing crypto forward. You know, Jeff, do you think the simple answer about regulations and DeFi and everything coming together as it relates to Bitcoin is that Bitcoiners don't want to actually do anything with their Bitcoin. We want to just leave it. I mean, that's one of the reasons that we got into it in the first place. You're asking a dangerous question, Charlie. <laughs> and here's why. is uh, And this, uh, this is my Bitcoin pessimism. So I, you accidentally wandered into that. But uh, one of my a little bit sadnesses of uh, Bitcoin is I think it's been a little bit ossified post-2017. 
It hasn't seen a lot of the dynamism that some of the other networks uh, have seen. You can absolutely argue, as, as I think you did a little bit earlier, that that's good, right? You know, is uh, slow, measured, considered change. Let the other young Turks perform experiments and we'll learn from those experiments. That, that is absolutely sound logic. But I worry, and I think uh, the Lightning Network might be rescuing Bitcoin a little bit, which is good. Uh, but I worry that some of the use cases of Bitcoin are just being peeled away and uh, moving to other networks. And that therefore reduces, just net reduces the direct use cases for see, Bitcoin down point, to yeah. kind of hodling and getting more people to hodl. And that becomes a, a circular circular argument in and of itself. And well, why are you stacking be... sats? Because I'm stacking sats. And and I never want to get to that that unintentional Ponzi level where there's no reason to hold Bitcoin other than holding Bitcoin. You'll always build out the products and services on top of the network and continuing to grow it and build out the technology and the infrastructure. I guess what I'm getting at is one of the majority use cases about Bitcoin was that it just won't change in that respect, like the, the constant you don't have to worry ever about poly market type issues, $600 million hacks, or even Ethereum DAO issues that still could happen today. I mean, if I was keeping a billion dollars in Ethereum, I would be very worried moving that, having that be moved over to another version of Ethereum. I mean, that's a huge risk and that's fine. You can add a risk threshold to that. You can say that risk is worth to me this amount of money. Therefore, the yields are greater. Um so no, I, I do agree there. And that, uh, you know, one of the Ethereum bumper stickers that drives me crazy is their kind of snarky rejoinder to Bitcoin sound money is Ethereum is ultrasound money. And that's where I just have to, to face palm and say, no, we're, we're just making up uh, nonsense words at this point. Uh, it's not ultrasound money if you're changing the monetary policy every six months to a year. And, you know, to your point, you can absolutely bet that Bitcoin's monetary policy probably will not change again. I mean, we hope so. I don't know what it's going to be like in the year 2035. I mean, I'll be around. You'll be around. We'll be here hopefully to 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 fight against someone. But but at that point, the year 2035, 99 percent of all Bitcoin will be mined, I think the number is. And and so. There'll maybe probably will be a push to increase that number. Oh, you know, like Satoshi didn't envision Bitcoin getting this big this fast. And then the year 2150, when you and I won't be, oh, maybe we'll be around with, with, with freezing. You know, I'm trying to freeze my, my brain after I pass away. <laughs> but so maybe we will be around. But in the year 2150, when all of the Bitcoin, there's going to be a huge existential. You're going to see a, probably a huge civil war on a scale where people wanting to continue seeing Bitcoin be released. And therefore, you'll see false Satoshis again, false messiahs. Bitcoin is I, I not plan without to, its risks. Uh, I plan to upload my brain in a, yeah, a I style be there like that. the Free Jack movie, <laughs> if uh, anybody's seen that uh, ancient movie. But here I'm optimistic about Bitcoin. Satoshi Same. did what you should do economically in that it's reduced supply shocks. It's uh, wean people off the new block reward slowly rather than all at once. By the time you get to 2030, 2040, whatever, it's, uh, you know, it's the new block reward is down to such an insignificant level that people have already kind of figured it out. 
And it's, you know, nobody's going to go to war over a, a single sat, a new block reward. So I'm pretty optimistic that that, that part is, is working well. The having is uh, kind of the slow release if you look at it on a multi-decade scale. And uh, so I'm, I'm pretty optimistic on that. I just want, uh, you know, I want to see Bitcoin have more use cases. I, I think Bitcoin that, right now is on, you know, what, what are the strengths, right? Bitcoin is unquestionably the king. Bitcoin is unquestionably it's the, only sovereign the money. network yeah, that will survive. It has the highest survivability factor of any yeah. of these blockchain networks. It has the best infrastructure, both uh, technologically as well as financial. You know, all these firms that are building on Bitcoin from your, you know, fidelities of the world to your small businesses and, uh, you know, crypto punk one and two businesses, all of that's infrastructure too. You know, all the stuff that uh, Jack Mahler's is building, all of that's infrastructure. And so Bitcoin has the most infrastructure and the, the most mature season infrastructure, both financial as well as technological. You know, there's so many, you know, it's uh, monetary policy is least likely to change. Because it has, again, so many incumbent defenders that are invested yes. in that current uh, setup. So uh, all, all of those are strengths. I'd say the, uh, the challenges and headwinds are it's, it's difficult to build on versus some of the other uh, blockchains. Here's an abstract but important one. Bitcoin lacks on-chain self-sovereign entities. And what that means is that uh, a Bitcoin address is always going to either like some script, which is a bunch of keys and wallets, or directly to you know a key and wallet. It, it is not like in Ethereum, a, an address can be a contract, which is a fully self-sovereign, fully autonomous entity. I see what uh, you're saying. As the, uh, as the first level. I'm for maximum human freedom at the end of the day. It's it's to me, it's I'm not about Ethereum or Bitcoin or whatever. You know, I, I want payment freedom for 10 billion people. You know, that's what gets me up in the morning. And so, so it's like uh, Bitcoin is like this slow moving army and all these other blockchains and protocols you could argue are the the warriors that want to go ahead of the army. They take the bigger risk, but they have the bigger reward. And then that main army can learn from like the scouts mistakes or positives in a way that's that's the theory that's what we hope but uh that that one big missing piece missing not having uh simply you know simply put not having contract addresses limits what uh bitcoin could do versus the other networks you when is have, bitcoin gonna get that i don't know that it ever will that's a that's a big big mountain to climb what has the new uh, uh, Bitcoin updates given us what we've seen in the past few months uh, with Taproot and with uh, different types of signatures and um, absolutely the... nothing. Yeah, nothing. It's uh, quoting Edward Snowden. It's uh, fancy sig fappery. It's it's plumbing Vaporware. that's a little bit more shiny, but the people who are actually using Bitcoin, they'll it'll silently be a little bit more private. But from a user, I always think uh, at the top level, what's the user outcome? What's the UI UX impact? And what's the user story? Because that's, that's what, that, that's been my personal biggest life lesson 
is thinking for going from a 20 or 30 year old thinking inwardly, what do I want to see and build to as a, a now 47 year old thinking, what do users need and want to use? And but at so some point you stop being the user then in that situation, because I, my investing thesis is which products and services like you do I, do I need? And those are the ones that are always successful. I'm always like pissed off when I don't invest in products that I love and have been using all this time. But when did you transfer to like not being that user anymore? Well, it's, uh, you know, I, I have goals, right? You know, the, the goal of everyone being, being have a self-sovereign cryptocurrency wallet, having, uh, you know, payment freedom that's uh, free from government surveillance, kind of those activist goals, right? And if I work backwards from that, it's got to be uh, a great user experience to achieve that. And it's got to be a super safe user experience to achieve that. And crypto's user experience so far has been, if you're not a tech nerd, you have to get a ton of stuff explained to you before you can safely transact in a way that's, you know, I can't steal your Bitcoin super easily. And that's been one of my frustrations because I want to, I want everybody to be a Bitcoin holder, right? And uh, the rough edges in the technology have kind of made that much more difficult. And that was honestly part of the reason why I got into Vesper a year ago was DeFi was full of rough edges. DeFi was full of what we call the food festival where there'd be a, you know, a yam hack and a sushi hack. And, a, you know, every hack seemed to be associated with food for some reason. Uh, the outcome of that was, again, if I want people to have maximal freedom, maximal control, there needs to be kind of the, the banking system, but on, on blockchain, secure, easy to use, and the thief deterrent and hack deterrent. And uh, we dove into Vesper because no one else seemed to be paying attention to professionalizing DeFi, you know, doing this, but properly, you know, just applying simple freaking software engineering principles of code test, beta test, live test. And then limited production and then ramp up to full production. You know, people were were deploying contracts and a billion dollars would go into a contract in 30 days and then it would get hacked. And it was all avoidable. It was, it would just apply standard software engineering principles, and all of that could have been avoided. And and DeFi was tripping over that a year ago again and again and again. So uh, that, that was what led me to the, uh, we got to create a, an environment, a culture within DeFi of security and being careful with people's money because there's not any other safety layer other than the ones we software developers provide. You know, you've given me a lot to think about today as it relates to what my needs are now as a sovereign individual to take care of my family versus what I need in the future uh, as like a personal thing, but also as being part of like a pro-social member of society. And you have to kind of balance the needs of both, right? You're, you're a member of society, but you're also an individual. Um, yep. A lot of, and so what's beautiful about DeFi, one of my favorite things about it is that it, it allows everyone uh, who understands it, especially to earn very, very significant yields but by taking very, very, very low risk, really the risk is the technology itself. Can you kind of explain to me, explain to our listeners 
how that is actually the case and what you're doing with Vesper Finance. Absolutely. One of the one of the things that I, I really like about uh, blockchain in particular is that it enables this new model. I guess I'll call it asset management, whereby we're not actually holding the funds that are being managed. We, the you know, Vesper Finance software developers, et cetera, it's, it's a new way of managing assets in a non-custodial way. And I'll, I'll explain what that means. In traditional finance, you're, you'll take your checkbook or, or ACH and you'll transfer uh, some funds from your bank to Schwab. And then Schwab will transfer funds to another bank account, say a hedge fund or an ETF fund, and then from there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And each step of the way, it is people and spreadsheets. They're, they're cross-checking each other, hopefully, but it's all a human-based, people-based, error-prone process. Part of the, the reason why blockchain is so important from a freedom perspective is that uh, it gets that sort of corruptible element to an absolute minimum? Is uh, you know, obviously, I'm a person. You know, uh, I, I maybe speak. Uh, I use the word human a little bit too much because I love robots and robotics and and automation. But sometimes the person, sadly, is the the weak link. Uh, whether it's a, a corruptible politician or a, a large corporate entity, and you you bribe somebody or or whatever. And uh, blockchain introduces provable actions, provable transparency. And that's what really attracted me to build Vesper Finance. There are a lot of yield opportunities in DeFi. And uh, what we do is we uh, dive deep into uh, Compound and Aave and MakerDAO and a and hundred other platforms. So you're doing that, the work. Uh, we're doing the work so that you don't have to. So at the end of the day, we wanted to super simplify it. If you're an ETH holder, you deposit ETH and it compounds in a conservative, you choose, or aggressive fashion. It's that it, period, end of story. And we'll, underneath the hood, uh, go to these various DeFi platforms. We'll evaluate them, diligence them. What is their uh, quality audit levels, You know, level of team checks, self-checks, professionalism quality assurance we you know we have a hundred point checklist for each of these products and if it passes that stringent filter then we add it to our automation but again the you you know all of that is uh you know for the interested plumbers listening right the the super simple is you deposit eth and it automatically compounds and you uh have a certain level of safety and security that uh we've provided that others don't have to worry about it's such a beautiful thing. Is this the ultimate perfect user interface for the ultimate end user? Do you think it could get better? Do you think there, uh, uh, how we interact with DeFi will and, and can get better? And what type of products do we need to build to do that? Yeah, I'm, I'm always dissatisfied. I always want uh, more for uh, our users. I uh, always think that there's room for improvement no matter, no matter where we are in history. Uh, we can always get better. I think a lot about the again the the average person. You'll you'll see this on my Twitter uh, when I uh, I'll get into Twitter debates with other crypto folks. The average user is always number one in my mind, not the 
the crypto degen who has three ledger wallets and, and knows DeFi and Bitcoin like the back of their hand, but someone just learning about crypto, that's their journey. How can we handhold them? How can we keep them safe in their journey to be a self-sovereign individual and build a you know self-sovereign uh, local communities? That's literally and, the uh, point of yeah. this show. Yeah, That's literally and part the point of it of is show. like, what is that? The, my biggest user story is what if you lose all your electronics? Every single one of them. How do you recover? You know, how you can't put houses on a blockchain until I lost my house key, my, my house private key. Do I no longer own my biggest investment of my entire life because I, I screwed up an electronic device? That's, that's the worst answer that any husband or wife uh, or, or uh, child of parents wants to hear, right? So how do, we, how do we do those sort of real, answer those very real world questions in a way that allows people to live in crypto 24-7. Jeff Garzik, you have so many things that you've done in the space that there are too many to name. Uh, now you're doing your CTO of Vesper Finance. It's such a pleasure to have you back on the show today talking about what you've been up to. Thank you so much for taking the time and coming on Untold Stories. And and I really do like agree with you because I had to like rebuild from scratch twice and to become this like sovereign individual with the help of crypto. And so all I've been trying to do every episode is end it and have the listener at least be like, okay, I understand a little bit better how to take more control about over my life. Absolutely. And I, I think that uh, this space still needs to level up on education. I think this yeah. space needs to level up on uh, disaster recovery. I still have some more dream businesses that I want to start. I just lost all my electronic devices. You're my backup key. Voice authentication service is at top of mind. Uh, we need more customer service. The, the fear though. DeFi. We, need, uh, we need a lot for the average person still. But how do, you, how do you create disaster recovery on a blockchain? Because the only way I could think of is if you create a like legal mechanism and then there's a, like a, a company that's maybe like a trust or a, a specific type of like regulated in a way to be your disaster recovery if you lose your electronics. But all I see there is a backdoor for like civil and criminal courts to try to control your assets. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And uh, I take the solution from, uh, uh, I don't know if the, his company is still active, but Andreas Antonopoulos had a third key solutions business. It may still be going. And I think that third key along with some fancy SIG fappery, as, as Snowden says, uh, some uh, multi-SIG magic uh, can do the trick. So you can yeah. say, okay, this, uh, this backdoor key can be used as long as the primary keys don't cancel it out or something like that. You can, one, of the, one of the biggest lessons is crypto is time, wall clock, calendar time is the most powerful thing in the world. You can say, well, backdoor can be you know, you turn the backdoor key and then 30 days later, if it hasn't been canceled by the primary holder, uh, then it unlocks stuff like that. Oh, yeah. You can like time. Lock. Yeah, there's a lot you can do. You're right. You're right. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you for, for taking that time today. And I'll talk to you soon. Absolutely. Thanks a bunch, Charlie.